Hey. <laughs> Hi, welcome everyone. So quick note after the previous talk by Max. Um, please post your questions um, in, the, in this event, in the live discussion on the questions tab, not in the chat tab because like sometimes the questions that are in the chat tab get lost. And also please upvote, because like uh, the questions that are most upvoted will be uh, picking them for the QA sessions uh, afterwards. But anyway, uh, our next speaker here is Josh Green. Josh is professor of psychology and a member of the Center for Brain Science faculty at Harvard University. And his talk will be on moral cognition for the greater good, boosting effective giving and reducing political animosity. Please welcome Josh Green. Great. Well, thanks. Uh, it is really just such a pleasure to be here, and I'm so delighted to be having this meeting in, in my home metropolitan area uh, of, of, of Boston. Um, I've, I've been a fan of effective altruism for a very long time, I think before it had, uh, it, it had a name. And it just makes me so happy to see how much this movement has taken off and the fact that we can have a gathering with this many people uh, you know, in, 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 in this place and, and so many young people, this makes me so happy. So delighted that you're here and really looking forward to hearing your thoughts about the work I'm going to tell you about. Um, so I, I feel like I'm here not just representing myself or my lab, but uh, also to a large extent psychology and the human behavioral sciences more generally. Uh, so you know, effective altruism has been extraordinarily influenced by philosophy, and there has been a very strong influence of economics, especially in the area of development, uh, international development, and, uh, and then artificial intelligence and computer science somewhat more recently. Uh, psychology, cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, I think hasn't yet uh, sort of done what it can for effective altruism. And so part of what I hope to show you today is that there's real impact to be had and real gains to be made by thinking scientifically about human behavior and, and, and human decision-making, and especially the aspects of human decision-making that we might not be inclined to focus on if we ourselves are the kind of people who are drawn towards effective altruism. Um, so we want to understand the mechanics of the human mind, and of course, it's not just single minds operating in, in isolation, it's, it's, it's minds interacting with each other and responding to social influences. And as you'll see, that's you know, me, an, an, an important part of what I'll be talking about. Um, so the work that I'm going to be presenting uh, in the first half is really driven by the amazing Lucius Caviola. I don't know if Lucius is here. Lucius, if you're here, raise your hand. If you're not, I'll catch you later. Okay, well, he's heard this before. So, um, But Lu Lucius is, is, is really fantastic. And in particular, I want to draw your uh, attention to Lucius's paper, The Psychology of uh, in, in parentheses, Effective Altruism, um, which came out last year in Trends in Cognitive Sciences, which I think is the first real review of the psychology of effective altruism or ineffective altruism, and I, I think he did a fantastic job with that. And then in the second half of the talk, I'll be talking about work led by Evan DeFilippis, who is a also fantastic uh, graduate student uh, in the um, Organizational Behavior Program, which is joint between Harvard Business School um, and Arts and Sciences, in particular psychology. So two wonderful people uh, who I've just had such a great privilege to work with, and I'm really excited about what they've done. Um, 
So recently I was at a meeting where I had to sort of say what I was about for my little you know, badge at the meeting in like a very short number of characters. And so this really sort of forced my thinking. And, and, and what I came up with was, well, my, my, my goal is to expand the circle of human cooperation and altruism. That's what I'm about. And that is, I think, what, what really what, what I'm about. And I take my cue here, of course, uh, from Peter Singer, who's had an enormous influence on me and I know many of you here. And the two projects that I'll be talking about are about expanding the bounds of altruism and cooperation that are at two different levels. So the first project, Giving Multiplier, I see is really about going beyond national borders and thinking about how we can do as much good as possible. And in particular, trying to create a pathway for people who are not first adopters of effective altruism to use their, their resources in a way that does as much good as possible. And then the second project, which I'll be talking about, which we can call Red Brain, Blue Brain, although that may not be the final public-facing name for this, is really about divisions at the sub-national level um, and, uh, and, and thinking about how a better understanding of human behavior can bring uh, to, can, can resolve intergroup conflict um, and, and, and help us uh, forge a larger us. Um, so that's what these two projects are about. Um, as you know, effective altruism has spent a lot of time thinking about how can we make the world happier? How can we reduce people's suffering? Um, and ultimately, giving multiplier, which I'll explain, is, a, is, is about supporting charities that very effectively uh, do that either now or in the future and for humans or for animals, although I'll mostly be talking about humans. Um, conflict between groups um, and political conflict in particular is, is not something that has been a major focus of effective altruism so far, but I, I think it should be moving forward. And I think the reason why it hasn't is because, not so much because of the altruism part, but because of the effective part. That is, I think most of us would agree that uh, you know, the decisions that we make collectively, politically, are enormously important when it comes to things like cl climate change, when it comes to things like pandemic, when it comes to things that haven't quite arrived yet, like you know, safety from advanced artificial intelligence. Uh, the choices we make through our governments are probably the ones that are going to have the, the, the biggest effects. Um, uh, recently, I, I, I remember uh, Francis Collins, former head of the National Institutes of Health, being asked in an interview if he had any regrets about how they handled the pandemic. And what he said was, well, we did a fantastic job getting vaccines developed and out and deployed, and it just never occurred to us, meaning him and his people at the NIH, that politics, that, that, that political tribalism would be the biggest obstacle to actually getting people vaccinated. Now, a lot of people in, in, in psychology, especially social psychology, were like, Duh, you know, this is what we do. But most of the world doesn't think about this. We tend to think of these kinds of problems as technical problems, technical problems at the material level. How do you get the, how do you, how do you get the RNA right? But, um, and I guess I'm interested in social technology, in understanding how our human minds work and creating social processes and structures that can enable us to make better decisions. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, my hope is that with this kind of work, we can bridge the divides that cause so much damage, whether it's in Ukraine or here or, or, or anywhere else in the world where people are uh, at each other's throats, either you know, violently or, or, or through the political process, or, and we're kind of on the border of, of that in the United States now. Okay, so normally at this point in the talk, I give my usual sort of effective altruism in, intro. I'm just gonna whiz through this. Um, I would tell you about how there's, this is for giving multiplier, enormous uh, variation in how effective 
different charities are, um, and that there are wonderful organizations that do a great job of trying to figure out which charities are most effective, and often orders of magnitude it's more effective, sometimes 100 or 1,000 times more effective than typical charities. And then in, in the space of um, global poverty and health, you know, these are examples of, of charities that I'm a big fan of, and I'm sure some of you are as well, that you might support if you wanted to do as much good as you can with your resources. Um, so for a long time, I've been trying to think as a psychologist, okay, well, how can I persuade people to use their resources more effectively? And I started with what seemed to me to be the obvious way, which is uh, to try to persuade people the way that I was persuaded, with basically Peter Singer-style arguments. And so I, I took different cracks at this. Most of the things didn't work at all, which is why they're unpublished. One paper on this uh, with, with Peter, among others, led by Matthew Lindauer, where we gave people rational appeals of a, of a sort of classic drowning child argument style, and then uh, more emotional appeals, and we combine them. And you know what we found, especially with the rational appeals, was they would have a little bit of an effect on some people. We could detect it statistically, so we could get this published, but the effects were not really big. And then uh, recently, Lucius and I hit on this other strategy, which has been much more successful, and we're really excited about it, and I'm excited to tell you about how it works. So. Speaking for myself, as I said, you know, for years I and my wife have used uh, our disposable income, at least some of it, to support charities like this. But we also find ourselves doing what you might call sort of straying from the EA path, and we support things like our local public schools and uh, you know people who are, who are needy in Boston who you know uh, you, you don't get as much bang for your buck out of helping those people, but they're people in our community and supporting political causes where we're not necessarily sure that what we're doing is is so effective, but it just feels very important to us. And uh, we do more of this dollar for dollar than, than than this, but we do a kind of split. And having that split sort of works out pretty well. That is, we, you know, most of our, 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 our funds goes to stuff that we have good reason to believe is highly effective, but we also are able to sort of scratch the emotional itch we feel for these other things that are just important to us on a, on a very basic gut level. And the typical effective altruism pitch for charitable giving is, well, you should be doing stuff like this and in, instead of things like this, I'm not sure everybody says this, and I know some effective altruists or effective altruism enthusiasts, as you might say, uh, who don't say that, but that's at least the way it's often perceived and, 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 and often presented sim simply. And what Lucius and I thought was just, well, what if we just ask people to do both, right? Um, and the thought was that maybe for most people, if you ask them to do both, you'll actually get more funds moved to the highly effective charities than if you present it as an either or uh, decision. So we started experimenting with this. So we call this bundling. Um, and we asked people in a control condition in our first experiment, we just gave people two options. Uh, we chose a deworming charity um, as our sort of effective charity. And then we said, you can pick any charity you want. Just you know, send us the, you, you paste in the URL. And um, when it's presented as a forced choice, we still got a decent number of people in, uh, who are willing to give to the highly effective charity that we recommended and said it was recommended by experts. But the vast majority of people chose to donate to the charity that they chose. Um, and I should say, this was done, this was done online. This was done with, uh, with, with real stakes. Um, so they were given uh, a certain amount of money and they said, anything that you don't donate, you can keep in the form of an Amazon gift card. So there are real stakes in these, in, in, in these decisions. Um, and when we gave people a third option in addition to these two options, 
giving them a 50-50 bundle option, what we found was that over 50% of people chose the bundle. And what this meant is that by adding that bundle option, more funds, 76% more in that first experiment, went to the highly effective charity than if you just did it as an either-or kind of decision. Um, so one thing you might want to know, at least if you're a, a decision scientist, is, OK, well, is it that people like splitting between a highly effective charity and a charity of their choice, or is it just that people like splitting uh, ch charity? So we, we gave people different kinds of, uh, of, of bundles to choose from. So your favorite plus one that's highly effective, your favorite plus one that's very popular, your favorite plus one that's just described neutrally. Um, and what we found is that when we uh, gave people three different bundle options, more people chose the highly effective one. So it suggests that there's something distinctively appealing about bundling your personal favorite charity with a charity that's highly effective. It's not just that people like to split them. And, um, and we did this a couple of different ways. We controlled for the charities and just told people what's effective and what's not. So, and then in other cases, we actually chose a real-world, highly effective charity. I think it was the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which is actually more effective than you might think, but not as effective as something like Deworm the World. Um, OK, so then we wanted to know, why is it that these bundles are so appealing? And we had a, a hypothesis um, that, you know, based on my own experience in Lucius's, that you get, you sort of scratch a certain itch by giving to your personal favorite charity, but how much you give is not really what's so important, right? And that whether, as you give more and more to your favorite charity, you're not really getting more of that warm glow. It's really about giving something. It's about doing something. So to test this first part of our idea, we gave people different splits with different ratios. So 10% to effective, or sorry, 10% to your favorite, 90 to effective, 40 to your favorite, 60 to effective, and then 60, 40, and 90, 10. And what we found and what we predicted is that you get diminishing returns of value from uh, giving to your favorite effective charity. That basically, once you've, once this is for most people, once you've given about half to the charity that you chose as your favorite, at that point, you're, you're, you're kind of indifferent. And what's nice about that then is that it makes room for this other kind of satisfaction that you can have. Um, so we wanted to sort of test the idea that you're getting this sort of increased overall satisfaction by giving to the highly effective one, but then also getting a kind of satisfaction that comes from, or sorry, giving to your favorite, but then getting the satisfaction that comes from doing something that you know is highly effective. So we did a version where we had people choose, um, uh, either they could, some people gave all to their effective charity, some people did the bundle, and some people did uh, all to their favorite charity. And we asked people, to what extent did you feel like you supported a personal cause that you really care about? To what extent do you feel like you did something highly effective? We also ask people about fairness. Um, and what we find is that you know, when people give to their personal favorite charity, they feel like they really did something personally meaningful. But when they give to the bundle, the difference between these two is not that big. It's much smaller than the difference between giving half and giving nothing to your favorite charity. Whereas it's more of a kind of straight line for the effectiveness. So when you give with the bundle, you get almost all of the benefit of giving to your favorite charity by giving half to it. These were 50-50 bundles. And you get this additional satisfaction of doing something effective. And then a lot of people also thought that doing the bundle was fair. So you get sort of these two distinctive kinds of satisfaction at once with the bundle. Um, and another piece of this may be how you see yourself, or perhaps how you expect other people will see you, consciously or unconsciously. And in, in this study, we asked people to rate 
uh, three different donors. Uh, the way we set this up was all three of these people are familiar with this uh, foster home for children, um, and but they also are aware of opportunities for giving that are highly effective. And then one of those people says, you know, I'm just going to give everything to the foster home. Uh, and it's described as you know, not as highly effective as, as, as the dewarming charity, which I think is what we chose in this case as well. Um, so one person said, okay, I'm going to give everything to this international aid charity. And then someone else said, I'm going, going to split. And we asked people to evaluate these people on their warmth and on their competence and a number of other dimensions. Um, and what we find is that for the person who gives to the bundle, they're rated as just as warmly as the person who gave everything to the From Your Heart charity, and they're rated as a lot more competent than them. Whereas for the person who gave everything to the effective charity, interestingly, they're not even rated as, as competent as the bundled donor, um, and, uh, and they're certainly rated as less warmly. So in terms of how other people might see you and how maybe how you kind of see yourself, when you give with the bundle, you get this warmth, competence, duality, right? And I should say in social psychology, warmth and competence are kind of considered to be the two main dimension, at least according to a major theory from Amy Cuddy and Susan Fisk, uh, main dimensions of, of, of person perception. So there's a kind of trace of good character in, 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 in splitting. Now, I'm not saying that you're actually a better person if you dis this instead of that, but just that this is maybe how it feels to most people. Um, Okay, so we thought, well, it seems like we're onto something here, that these bundles are appealing, but if we just wrote a paper and said, okay, world, everybody make bundled donations, probably not a lot of people would do it. And so we wanted to come up with a way to make this happen. And we thought, well, you know, there's a straightforward thing you can do. You can offer people money. I uh, say, if you make a bundled donation, we'll add money on top. Um, but then this raises the question of, well, where is that money that you're adding on top, those matching funds, where is that going to come from? Um, and so this was one of the other things we managed to solve. So as we said, people like bundles, but in the real world, you could give them matching incentives, but you need to figure out who is going to pay. And so we have this simple idea, which we call micro-matching, which is just asking donors if they would be willing to contribute to the matching fund. And the, the way we did this was we asked them, for if you made a split donation, would you be willing to take the half that was going to go to the highly effective charity that five minutes ago you didn't even know existed and would you be willing to put that in the matching fund instead to, to, to add on to other people's donations? Um, and we found that people were very happy to do that. So when we use the matching scheme like this, uh, where we give you a 25% bump for doing a bundle, but also a 50% bump for giving everything to the effective charity, we found that there was a 55% increase in donations to the effective charity, which is about a 2.6 rate of return on the matching funds that were put in. And in another experiment where we actually asked people if they'd be willing to add matching funds, um, about a third of people said that they would be willing to do this. And this ended up giving us in this experiment about three times the amount of matching funds that we needed to cover the donation matches for the other people. So we looked at this and we said, I, could this really work? I mean, it seemed like it should work. People really like the bundles. They really, really like them if you add money on top. And it seems like people, at least enough of them, are happy to put in money so that you can add money on top for the people who are not willing to do that. Um, so we said, all right, well, let's try this in the real world. Um, before I get to I'll just kind of recap the main psychological points. So people like a favorite effective bundles, uh, but giving to your favorite charity, why does it work? Because giving to your favorite charity has this kind of diminishing returns. Um, 
Whereas when you give a bundle, you get this sort of dual satisfaction of, of giving from the heart and giving from the head, being uh, warm and competent in your own eyes and perhaps the eyes of others. And matching funds can incentivize more effective giving, and people seem to be willing to provide matching funds, at least an, enough to cover the costs. So we decided to create this uh, website called Giving Multiplier, which basically does uh, for the general public what we've been trying to do in these experiments. So um, you go to givingmultiplier.org, you'll see a landing page like this that explains how it works, a little video that you can watch about it. Um, and if you decide to do it, the first thing you do is you use this search field to enter any charity you want. So you know whatever it is that you might put in there, your local public school or Doctors Without Borders or anything. Um, and then you pick from our list of super effective charities. Many of these will be familiar. I've mostly been focusing on the global health and poverty ones, but we also have uh, animal charities like uh, the Good Food Institute and Humane League, uh, climate change and pandemic pr pr prevention. And we're gonna think about how we might expand this in the future, but these are the nine that we've been working with for now. So you pick one of these based on a little description, and then you decide how much you wanna donate overall. And then you use this nifty little slider that uh, allows you to sort of allocate how much you want to give to the, the super effective charity um, and the charity that you chose. And the more that goes to the highly effective charity, the higher the matching rate. So we have the matching rate on a kind of uh, sliding scale. Um, and then after people have donated, um, we say to them, okay, well, you, made your, your, you set up your donation, but if you want, you can contribute to the matching fund and you could have an even bigger impact by giving to the matching fund, which would incentivize other people to do this. So part of it, I think, is people want to be even more effective. I think also part of it is reciprocity. That is, you just took some matching funds from the system, and now you're being asked, do you want to contribute? And I think a lot of people are motivated by this sort of pay it forward idea, although we haven't explicitly tested this. Um, so we did a bit of uh, advertising for this. Lucius and I wrote an op-ed that was in the LA Times, and uh, he wrote an op-ed with Peter Singer, and I've been on some podcasts, and there was an article in Market Watch and a nice article in Vox that sort of uh, brought some people to the site. And um, overall, this has been the result. So we launched in 2020, uh, so uh, in, in, in November 2020, so I guess this is like 16, 17 months ago, and uh, 1.6 million uh, dollars total have been donated. I mean, we were really surprised by this. We were, we would have been happy if this was like one step above bake sale, um, and and this really far exceeded our expectations. Um, so it's been about over 3,500 donations from about 2,200 unique donors, um, and a million of that 1.6 million, over a million, has gone to the highly effective charities that we're recommending. Um, and of, I think this is out of the total 1.6 million, but 50% has been counterfactual for those of you who that keep track of these kinds of things. Um, this is based on, we asked donors, how much would you have given if you, didn't, if you had not had any involvement with giving multiplier? And you know, some people will say, oh, I would have given everything, but it's mostly not. Um, it's, it's, so there, there was the, the, it's mostly counterfactual. And 30% of the donors gave at least something to the, uh, to, to the matching fund. And what this means is that so far, the system has been entirely self-sustaining. And like at every stage, we've been waiting, okay, when is this gonna finally break? And we keep, it, it doesn't, and we keep raising the matching rate. So now we're up to, we give, when we started, we were giving 15% match 
for doing a 50-50 bundle and a 30% match for doing everything to the highly effective charity. Now we're doing a 50% match for a 50-50 split, and we're doing dollar-for-dollar -dollar matching for giving to the highly effective charity, and we still have, are, are doing fine in terms of having enough in, in the matching fund. So the self-sustaining aspect of this has been what is most surprising. We were expecting that we would need some angels to come in and, and help us keep this going, but the regular donors have just been doing a, 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 a amazing, uh, keeping this going in this sort of wonderful pay-it-forward kind of way. And in terms of bringing new people into the expanding circle, so expanding circle in terms of who's benefiting from the donations, but also in terms of who's giving, um, most of the donors are new to effective altruism. 73% of them said they never heard of the charity, the, the highly effective charity that they, that they chose to support. So you know, part of our goal in this is not only the donations themselves, but as a way of bringing into effective people from effective altruism. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's been really successful in that way. Okay, so that's the first, uh, set of studies that I wanted to tell you about. Um, how am I doing on time? <laughs> oh boy, all right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go through this. Okay, so uh, let's talk about Red Brain, Blue Brain. Uh, so again, this is work done with the amazing Evan D. Philippus, and we are attempting to solve this problem, uh, which needs no introduction. And I should say, you know, this is not, to me, it's not just about the state of politics in the United States. I view this as really about the fundamentals of intergroup conflict in general, but you know, why go halfway around the world to find an acrimonious conflict when you've got one right here? So uh, that's, what, that's what we did. Um, so a lot of people, when they think about you know, what the hell has happened uh, to politics in the US, they think about the internet and they think about Fox News and they think of this as fundamentally an information problem, right? That if only we could get the other side to hear the truth, right, then everything would be better. And clearly the information environment is part of the problem, not denying that. But I don't think that that's the center of the bullseye. I don't think that's the whole problem. And this is nicely illustrated by this uh, study by Chris Bale and colleagues from a few years ago. They sort of took this get out of your media bubble approach and they said, well, let's try an experiment where we will pay partisans to follow a Twitter bot that will retweet things from the other side. So if you're a Republican, then you'll get tweets from, a, from, from, from Democratic sources and vice versa. And what they found was that for Democrats, it didn't work. And for Republicans, it made things worse. It actually backfired. That is, getting, get, getting tweets from, from the Democratic you know, uh, peanut gallery actually made them even more, feel more negatively towards Democrats. Um, now, I'm not saying that there aren't other ways that something like this could work, but this at least suggests that it's not just as simple as getting other people to hear what the other side would like them to hear. Other approaches have been kind of more about personal dialogue, bringing people together. Um, and, and here, people are thinking of this as, we have a disagreement about policy, and what we need is for people to talk together in a constructive way. And I have no objection to that, but here too, I don't think that that is the core of the problem. And so all of these initiatives that are about bringing people from opposite sides to talk to each other, I'm in favor of it, give it a try, but I don't think that talking about policy disagreements is really the fundamental problem. Okay, so what, what is the fundamental problem? So my view, which I could spend a whole, uh, course talking about, because that's what I do every, every spring, is that the story of life on Earth is the story of cooperation and conflict at increasing levels of complexity. So starting with primordial soup and RNA coming together to form more complex molecules and cells coming together to form more complex cells and colonies and multicellular organisms and social organisms and primates like us that pick the bugs out of each other's fur um, and you know, human groups 
getting along with each other and trading together and building a more unified world. This is, you know, at every step there's conflict and at every step there's the possibility for cooperation. And I think that this is really the stuff of life and that the fundamental challenge in the US and elsewhere is that Republicans and Democrats, and I think especially Republicans, feel like Democrats are not on their team that, and that they are no longer, they don't feel like America is their team anymore, that there is a, a sense of, you know, these, these people are not working for my benefit, they don't share my values, we are not part of the same us. And so my view is that if you want to fix that, you have to make people feel like and hopefully make them actually on the same team. And the problem then is, you know, if you wanted two chimps to get along, you wouldn't say, well, you need to get more tweets uh, from the other side. Instead, it's about reciprocity, as I said. It's about you pick the bugs out of my fur, I pick the bugs out of your fur, and we'll like each other. And I think that if you had to sort of boil it down to something absurdly simple, I think that this is really the essence of it. And there's a lot of evidence for this, but this is one of my favorites. If you have more friends from the other side, you're less likely to feel very coldly towards the other side. And I, I think that, that that speaks volumes by itself. This is not a new idea. It's not a new idea in psychology. It's not a new idea in the social sciences more generally. The idea that mutually beneficial cooperation breeds good goodwill um, and, and, and ultimately can lead to you know, better social arrangements. Um, I won't go through the history of this in, in, in psychology or in political science and so on, but I'm just saying you know, this, is, this has been discovered and rediscovered by every social science. One of my favorite sort of demos of this, I, I wouldn't really call it, it's not exactly a controlled experiment, but in the 50s, uh, Sharif and Sharif, uh, husband and wife team of social psychologists, took over a boys' summer camp. This is the famous Robber's Cave uh, State Park summer camp. And they had them compete against each other in these games. Uh, you know, here they are uh, doing this tug of war. Um, and they, they divided themselves into these two teams. They named themselves the Eagles and the Rattlers. And they competed. And after competing for a while, a lot of animosity developed. And they ended up having food fights and, and raiding each other's uh, um, bunks and violence broke out occasionally. And when they wanted to bring it all back together, they said, okay, well, this truck that has all of the food or all of the water, it's stuck and we all need to literally pull together in order to get this thing out of the mud. And that in the end is what you know, shifted the attitudes. Now, this is kind of an anecdote, kind of research, but I think that it actually gets at the right idea. And that's the idea behind what we're doing with red brain, blue brain. But the idea is to take this principle of mutually beneficial cooperation and do it in a way that is measurable and scalable and hopefully tr uh, transferable. So, so, so what we do is we have Republicans and Democrats paired up online to play as partners in a quiz game. And uh, in the interesting experimental condition, Republican and Democrats are partnered together, and then we have conditions where Republicans are paired with each other and Democrats are paired with each other. So that's, those are the control conditions. Um, and uh, you are, you, you, when you come online, you get a, um, uh, you, you fill out a little bit form with information about yourself. You know, do you like the mountains or the beach? What's your favorite color? Also, what's your politics? And then you take a quiz on your partner's uh, information, and that's how we make sure that they know, among other things, that it's someone from the other side or the same side in, 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 in the control condition. And they're connected with a chat box, so they can't see each other but they can communicate with each other. They often sometimes try to you know, reassure themselves that the other person is a real human and not a bot, um, which is interesting to sort of see in the chat tra tra transcripts. Um, and, uh, and they have to answer these questions like this in the first phase. 
and they get money for every question that they get right. They lose money for the questions that they get wrong, and they have to agree on a joint answer. So they're in the same boat, they have the same scores, and they gotta work it out, right? Uh, and they can privately register what they think the real answer is if they don't, if you don't privately don't agree with the joint answer. So we know sort of who's helping who. So, um, and uh, I, we've done many experiments with this now. We've done, I think, four different experiments, including two large pre-registered experiments. Uh, the data that I'm gonna show you today are from an, uh, our, our first big experiment with 600 people um, playing this game. Uh, and, um, and then we, we replicated it in another sample of the same size. Um, so in the first round, we eased people in with sort of non-threatening questions like Mount Rushmore is in what US state? And so they chat and say, oh, I think it's North Dakota. Really, I think it's South Dakota. Okay, well, I'll trust you and hey, look, we won, right? Um, so that's how it goes. Um, in round two, Evan did a fantastic job of figuring out based on like scraping stuff from Reddit and other places, what do Republicans know that Democrats don't and vice versa that's not about politics? So we asked them questions like this. What's the name of the family on the show, Duck Dynasty? Raise your hand if you know. Anyone? Come on, what is it? Robertson. Yeah, Robertson, close. We'll give you credit for that. It would be multiple choice, so you would have gotten it. Okay, <laughs> that's right. All right. Um, so, uh, so the Republicans, mostly, almost all of them know the answer to this question. Very few people who go to conferences in Boston know the answer to this question. But I bet you know the answer to this question. Anyone know the name of the girl on the show, Stranger Things, right? Yeah, a few of you, okay, right. So, so now it's not about politics, but we're getting a kind of knowledge complementarity here. Right? And so now you're really depending on the other person to, to, to get things right, at least a, a lot of the time. And then it's only in round three, after we've sort of, they like the game, they're kind of high-fiving, they, they're winning money, it's fun, I know stuff, you know stuff, isn't this great? Then you get to questions like this. What percentage of gun deaths in 2016 were caused by assault-style rifles? Um, now, Democrats will say like 50%, okay, maybe it's only like 30%. Uh, Republicans will say, no, it's like, 2% or maybe it's just 1%. Um, and in this case, the Republicans are right. Assault weapons actually are not a, a, a large percentage of gun deaths uh, in, in, in the US. Um, so this is a case where the Republicans get this politically contentious thing right. But if you ask about the rates of crime among immigrants in the US, then Democrats are likely to get it right, whereas Republicans are sure that immigrants are causing a disproportionate amount of crime. So now in this stage, after they built up some trust in each other and in the game, they have to compromise, and they're willing to do it because they make money, they're doing better, so they have to figure out who's right and who's wrong. And they have conversations like this. So the liberal says, oh, it's gotta be a big number, all those assault weapons. No, I actually remember it being really small, like 2%, but what about mass shootings? That's a small percent of gun deaths. Okay, I'll put 2% and 35% for my private. And now we have the liberal going, oh, nice, you were right, like cheering because the Republican was right about guns, right? Um, so this is the kind of magic that we're trying to bottle um, in these cases, and it goes, it goes in both directions. Um, okay, so you do this game, you, you sort of the, the, you're doing the sort of you know, political stuff for maybe 25 minutes, the whole thing takes about an hour, and before and after the game, we use a standard, or I'm probably gonna go a little bit over, but uh, is that for the whole thing or just for? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be as quick as I can, but uh, thank you. Uh, so, we use a standard political science feeling thermometer. How warm or cold do you feel towards your own group, Republicans, Democrats? And this is a measure that people have been using for 40 years. And over the last 40 years, 
the warmth has been going down, 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 right? Um, to the point where, where I think it's like 30 or 40 points lower for the outgroup than it, when it was um, in, in, in the 70s. So we do this before and after the game. We want to see, does, does the game make you feel warmly or less coldly towards the other side? So here are the results for Democrats. So before the game, no difference between playing with an outgroup partner and playing with an in-group partner. But after the game, you get this big jump up and um, a day later, it's still there. A week later, it's still there. A month later, it's still there. And you there's a, still a bit of a trend uh, at four months, but this is it's statistically significant at one month, despite the kissing error bars there. Um, what about the Republicans? Are they going to be so moved? And the answer is yes, even more so. So the Republicans, uh, after they play the game, more warmth. And four months later, we can still detect statistically significant differences in how warmly, or I should say less coldly, they feel towards Democrats as a result of having had this experience. Now, this is just self-report of feelings. We also do uh, economic allocation. So we say, we're going to give $100 to a random Republican or a random Democrat. Um, how do you want the money to be allocated? And most people will either say, well, give everything to my side, or they'll say a 50-50 split. So it's kind of fair allocation versus giving more to one's own side. For the Democrats, even a month out, they're giving more fairly. They're more likely to give the, the, the Republican a half of, of, of that stake. And this is real money, and we explain this to them, that it's, but it's going to be implemented probabilistically. And for the Republicans, four months out, still statistically significant, um, and quite strongly, more, more willing to give money to the Democrats. And I think this is more of a surprise for the Republicans because Democrats are so strongly demonized in the Republican media, that having an experience of like cooperating in a friendly and productive way with a Democrat is like revelatory, right? Um, so that's all to the good. And you might say, well, okay, so what, what's the secret sauce here? So what, what is it that's actually doing the work? Well, we ask people questions about how they felt about the game and what they did in the game. And to make a long story short, the thing that seems to predict best what goes well in the mixed group is, did you feel that your team did well? Did you feel that you respected your partner? Did you respect your partner? Did your partner respect you? Which is exactly what you'd predict from the cooperation view of the world, right? That it's, you know, are, am I contributing? Are you contributing? Are we both better off as a result? Uh, I don't have time to tell you about this, but we did a version of this where we got rid of the political questions and just used the Duck Dynasty Stranger Things questions to the end. And that worked pretty well too, although it worked a bit better with the politics in there. And the thought is that even though politics makes things messier, you, it helps if you play with your identity and it's salient to see that like a Democrat or Republican could be right about a political thing. We also did a one-player version where you're just getting answers from someone from the other side who played previously. And we, we were thinking of that as a control condition to show that you need the in-person in interaction, but that actually worked pretty well as well, although it went very quickly, which meant they got paid more per minute. So we're testing now to see if that was just about getting paid more or if the one-player game could really work. Um, so, and, and people leave these fantastic comments. So, uh, red is Republican, if that's not obvious. I love this experiment. It gives me further hope that we can work to get with others uh, no matter what divides us. It was amazing, engaging, well-structured, fun. Made me think about my own prejudices and feelings. I loved it. I made a new friend. It was fun as heck. That's what the person actually said. Made you stop and, uh, stop and think and work together towards a common goal. It was eye-opening, and this is my favorite. I enjoyed the expletive out of this experiment, possibly the coolest one I've done out of my 11,000 total. Bravo, folks. Bravo. So, um, so you know, not everybody says this, but but enough of these it makes us think that this is really getting to people in a positive way. And the way I think about this is, you know, online propaganda and de de divisive rhetoric 
has you know, wreaked enormous havoc at extremely little cost. Vladimir Putin got enormous value out of his GRU. It cost them almost nothing to create an enormous amount of division uh, in the United States. And as, so what, what's the opposite of a Russian government troll farm? Something that is scalable and that can produce goodwill and trust cheaply, right? And this is what we're trying to do. And so the, the hope is that we're gonna be able to turn this game that which we just have our custom version of for these experiments into an actual app that we could deploy uh, widely. Perhaps we can get corporate sponsors to, 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 to provide real stakes for people and things like that. And um, so we are, we're actively working on this now and hoping to actually start building a prototype app this summer so that it can be a scalable method to produce trust, respect, and goodwill across party lines. And ask me in the Q&A if you want, but I think that you know, the underlying principles here are not just about playing games. I would love to see this at work on the ground, in real labor, in real life, and I think that there may be ways to do this. So to sort of bring this together, uh, sorry for going over, uh, some important principles for both of these things. And I call this sort of deep pragmatism, which is my name for utilitarianism when you take human psychology into account, right? Um, in, in many different ways. You have to meet people where they are. Part of what works about giving multiplier is it's not saying, don't do this, do that. Instead, it's saying, do that, but what about this also? And we'll add money on top, right? It's, it's not telling people that they shouldn't care about what they already care about. Likewise, Red Rain, Blue Rain isn't saying, come have a dialogue, which makes Republicans want to give you the middle finger. They don't want dialogue. They want to win, right? Uh, and if you say, come play a game and win some money and show how smart you are, that's a much more appealing pitch to people in general, and I think especially to Republicans. So you want to offer people things they already want, work with people's preferences rather than overriding them, and change people's attitudes through positive experiences rather than telling them what they ought to think or what they ought to value. And again, I come back to this point of reciprocity, that in giving multiplier, it's, hey, we'll support your charity if you'll support ours, and, we, you know, and both can end up being better. With Red Brain, Blue Brain, it's, we work together and win together, and as a result, we have more positive feelings. And think, you know, reciprocity, I eat the bugs out of your fur, you eat the bugs out of my fur, that, that's the essence of, 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 of goodwill and trust and what brings people together. So, uh, effective altruism has, has worked a lot on this, but not so much on this and on intergroup conflict more generally, and has not paid so much attention to the science of human thinking and to sort of the, the broader concept context of how life got to be the way it is with competition and cooperation at these uh, increasingly large levels of complexity. And so my hope moving forward is that this is a new frontier for effective altruism. And I'm actually, I'm gonna be writing a book about this. Um, the Forethought Foundation I just recently learned is, is gonna uh, help me take a sabbatical for a full year and work on a book which I'm tentatively calling Engineering Peace, which is about taking these kind of underlying principles and thinking, you know, how can we understand the mechanics of intergroup conflict and create scalable solutions that bring the world closer together? So that's what I'm hoping to be thinking about and working on or will be thinking on and working on for, for most of the next year. Again, big uh, kudos to Lucius Caviola, who did an incredible job with everything he does, and, and including Giving Multiplier and all of the wonderful people who've made this possible. Every.org has did all of the financial back end for us, and we would never have been able to do that without them. EA Funds provided the initial support uh, for this. And then uh, Beyond Conflict and Schmidt Futures for supporting the Red Brain, Blue Brain, and Kirsten Brody and Isabel of Monday for their support. And my lab has been wonderful throughout. And that's it, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, so thanks. Thank you.